The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're having one of our coffee talks with two true giants of our field who really, really need no introduction, Dr. Craig Niederberger and Dr. Antonio Pellicer. Dr. Craig Niederberger is currently the Clarence C. Selhoff Professor and Head of the Department of Urology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He also holds a joint appointment as Professor in the Department of Bioengineering in the College of Engineering at UIC. Dr. Niederberger is an active contributor to several prominent journals as well as an active participant in urologic societies. He received his undergraduate degrees in chemistry and theater from Harvey Mudd College his medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh, and he then completed his residency at Michael Reese Hospital at the University of, uh, of Illinois at Chicago and fellowship training at Baylor College of Medicine. He is also the founder of the surgical device company NextHand. When researching him for this intro, we found over 1,100 publications authored by him on Google Scholar and more than 9,000 citations. Across from him, we have Dr. Antonio Pellicer, who serves as CEO at EBRMA Global and Professor of OBGYN at the University of Valencia. He studied medicine at the University of Valencia and completed his residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the Hospital Clinico in Valencia as well. He also did his fellowship in reproductive medicine at Yale University School of Medicine in the US and at the University of Mainz in Germany. Professor Pellicer founded the Instituto Valenciano de Infertilidad, EVI, in 1990, and went on to become a, a leader in our field. He's an executive committee member of ESHRAE and has served in many leadership roles in several other professional societies as well. Professor Pellicer has authored over 300 textbook, textbook chapters, um, more than 800 journal articles in national and international journals, and presented over 500 lectures uh, in conferences. In addition to these absolutely outstanding careers for both of them, Drs. Niederberger and Pellicer have served as co-editors-in-chief of the Fertility and Sterility Journal of the ASRM for the past 10 years. And they have done so with remarkable success. As the true legends of reproductive medicine that they are, we wanted to invite them to talk about what it is like to be the editor-in-chief of such a journal the responsibility, the challenging, the rewards too. So let's listen to the coffee talk of Dr. Niederberger and Pellicer with Dr. Emre Selly, our professor at Yale University and chief scientific officer here at EVRMA Global. Craig, Tony, hello and welcome today. Thank you both for making the time and your busy uh, schedule to be here with us. Uh, first and foremost, congratulations on an amazing tenure as co-editors-in-chief of FNS. It is hard for many of us to remember how things were 10 years ago and many others like Andres weren't even in the field yet. 
Can you kind of remind us what was FNS like when you arrived as editors in chief? Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's, first of all, I, well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you so much for that incredible introduction. That was really, really uh, special and meaningful. Um, and, the, and the second thing that I'd like to say is, is that um, just off the bat, um, it has been such a joy uh, to work with Tony. Um, Tony is, is an amazing scientist. He's a visionary. Uh, he's, um, uh, he has an incredibly creative mind. Um, and, and he's just a really good person, just a really good person. So for me personally, the best thing that happened in the last 10 years, and it was very gratifying to, to work on the journal, but to, you know, to get to know uh, Tony. Um, so when we started, the first thing to, to keep in mind is, is that um, that journal had been run very, very well for 17 years, I think. Um, Tony, I think it was 17 by Alan DeCherney. 13. 13 years, 13 years, um, by Alan DeCherney. Uh, and Alan did a great job. Um, Alan, uh, it, Alan is an amazing um, figure in the field uh, and um, has a wonderful wit, um, great organizational skills. Um, but, uh, but at the time, it was kind of a one-man show up until about two years before Tony and I joined. Uh, and then the Publications Committee of ASRM uh, pretty much said, Let, let's work with Alan to reconstruct the, the, uh, the structure of the journal so that Alan wasn't um, uh, peer reviewing all of them himself. I, I don't think any of us can do you know, everything. We're all subspecialists in one way or another. Um, and and so, so what, uh, what was constructed before our time, about two years before our time, was um, a group of associate editors uh, who, um, who would then have subspecialty focus uh, and who would manage their subspecialty areas. Uh, and so that's when we kind of like hit the journal. It was at a major inflection point. Uh, you know, this new structure had just, been, had, had just been put in place. Tony, is there anything else that uh, you uh, can add? No, first of all, I want to take this opportunity again uh, to say clear that for me, the best of these 10 years is uh, to have met you um, because at the beginning, everything was, you know, we didn't know each other and, and for us was something new to, uh, to share uh, such an important position and working for the society, two people that even didn't meet be before. And uh, we became very close friends. Uh, he says that I'm a good person, but he is even better. He never, never let me alone uh, during these years. We had some uh, uh, difficult moments. He always was with me. I was with him. And uh, what we have constructed is a friendship forever. And apart from that, uh, we did some work for the society because we were paid. So <laughs> that's it <laughs> to get started. Okay, perfect. So for those of us who have never had the privilege of working in such a big journal, such an impactful, uh, can you tell us, uh, like when someone is told they're the next editor-in-chiefs of FNS, what does that look like from the inside? I mean, does someone call you? Is this discussed at a meeting? How does that happen? Yeah, there, there was a process. Um, the executive committee uh, of ASRM and the publications committee of ASRM, the same process actually is, is what recently happened uh, with, um, with Kurt Barnhart, the next editor, uh, and uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful 
um, uh, um, figure in the field, and, and we're both very uh, comfortable and, and confident that that Kurt will um, take the take the journal forward um, in in the best of ways. Uh, but uh, but the process is is that um, is that there's an open application period. The you know the the uh, position is announced, and then uh, and then you put in an application, uh, and um, and then you're selected to be interviewed. Uh, and for me, um, that uh, first interview took place uh, via phone. Um, I'm not sure uh, if that was the case with Tony. Same thing. Uh, but then after after those interviews, then they called it down to uh, to a shortlist. Uh, and um, and so the the uh, interviews for the shortlist took place at ASRM uh, in a in a hotel room or in a conference room. Uh, and, um, uh, and, you know, it was an array of people uh, asking questions uh, and, uh, and, you know, us individually responding. Uh, so, um, so then uh, I got a phone call uh, and I think Tony got the same phone call, um, not at the same time. Um, and the phone call went something like, you know, we, we've, we think we've done something really creative. Uh, you know, we, we have uh, identified two people that we want to work together. Uh, and, um, and I, I'm an engineer. I, you know, everything that I do, I do in a team. So for me, it was like a moment of just pure joy listening to that. And then they told me that the person that they had selected was the person that was most interesting to me. I had seen Tony's work uh, in various journals. Uh, and uh, I knew that, you know, Tony was like the, you know, the, the, the top of an empire of uh, scientific productivity, uh, Evie, uh, and uh, and so I just you know my my heart just leapt uh, at the news that uh, that I'd be potentially working with with Tony, but that it was framed as a question, you know, will you work with Tony? And for me, the answer was yes, but I didn't know what the other side was thinking, so <laughs> so I'll turn it over to how Tony perceived that whole process. Yeah. For me, it was the same thing. Basically, uh, they called me in August. I remember that very well because I was uh, on vacation. So I had to come back to Valencia to, <laughs> to pick up the phone because they had the telephone number from my office. Ten years ago, it was not so easy to connect uh, the different telephones. So uh, I did an interview. And then uh, we had a, a meeting in person, as, uh, as Craig described, in a hotel with all the, I guess it was the publications committee. I don't know. It was a bunch of persons. <laughs> I only knew one of them because it was, was fellow also Ariel. The rest, I, <laughs> I didn't know who they were. Anyway, they asked the same question. And my answer was absolutely yes. Because in my life, I always shared responsibilities. Even at EV, I... I I always shared with uh, with uh, Pepe Remui, and uh, when I was dean of the medical school, so I used to to work as a dean with a team, and for me it was an easy decision. And uh, today I can say that that was the right decision. Wonderful, wonderful. So, okay, so now that you learned that you were going to be working together on this, what was your first order of business? Did you have a grand scheme of where you wanted to be, you, where you wanted the journal to be at the end of your 10 years? Or was that a cumulative result of smaller changes that you implemented? Uh, like, was there, a, did you kind of get together and agree on a 
overall plan? So we we met. Um, we, they brought us down to uh, to Birmingham, uh, the the uh, center of ASRM, uh, and we met and you know just kind of like uh, socialized a little bit um, uh, with the you know the the folk in in Birmingham. But but what what actually really happened was during the plane flight um, back. Uh, Tony spent uh, a little bit of time in in Chicago, uh, and um, and sitting in the airport together, uh, and sitting uh, in my living room together, we really sort of like put together the framework of you know what the journal would look like, and and there were major changes, right? Um, we uh, we sunsetted modern trends and and replaced it with views and reviews. Uh, you know, we created a structure of editorial editors. Uh, in addition to the associate editors and in uh, one of our stated goals uh, to the publications committee was that we would we would put into place a media editor so we did that as well uh, we, we did a lot of things together um, but but it was those first like hours um, on the plane or in the airport uh, and uh, in in uh, Chicago that really I think we did like the the the, the basic structural work I think Tony yeah. I th uh, this is true. We started with our meeting basically in Chicago because we have to get very fast out of uh, Birmingham. And uh, for us, it was clear that uh, uh, what Craig uh, just mentioned about the, the group of editors, how we wanted to introduce a section devoted to reviews and also to modernize the journal, because it was obvious at that time, 10 years ago, that we have to uh, make sure that the journal was strong in internet, because the world at that time was changing and the social media were already there and the video articles. And then we had our first uh, media editor. The second one is the current or the future, because we are still editors for two days. <laughs> the future editor-in-chief and the first the first uh, media editor was Steve Palter and then he developed a series of things that maybe Craig can explain better than me. So it, it's funny what Tony just said which was um, it's like the first um, the first snowstorm in Birmingham in like you know decades <laughs> it was yeah it was hilarious it was like this natural you know disaster for Birmingham they have one one snowplow so as soon as the snow started to fall, they were like, you got to get out of here. So they drove us to Atlanta and then we flew to Chicago. Uh, and, um, and sure enough, you know, it took four days to like dig Birmingham out. So, so this was clearly the hand of God working. They're telling us something. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like, we have to get Tony and Craig together for a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a, in their business yeah. schedule. In their business yeah. Schedule. Yeah. So, well, yes. I, well, I uh, I have before my next question. I, I really like would like to comment that you are truly brilliant people. In addition to all the accomplishments, because accomplishments don't always go in parallel with true brilliance. You can achieve a lot of things by being a bricklayer, which is also fine. But you're truly brilliant and creative. And so was Alan Dechorny, by the way. So I think Fertility uh, Sterility is doing a good job, and and Kurt is the great choice now. Again, it, I think it's fair to say that you accomplished all the things that you mentioned and more. And I know Craig is not necessarily a major believer of uh, impact factor, but as a simple example, 
the impact factor of the journal has gone from 3.1 in 2010 to 6.3 in 2019. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's more than double. And FNS started off as a single journal now, and now it has three sister journals in addition to the uh, main one. And that is quite a feat, but I'm sure it was not easy. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced during these years? Were they, were they things you expected at the beginning or were they completely unexpected? Well, for me, the, the most unexpected was scientific misconduct, um, how much of it there is. Uh, so um, that was a total surprise when the, you know, when the veil went up. We had a great conversation with human reproduction and, our, and, and other sister journals, but mainly with human reproduction so that we would kind of protect each other when like, you know, a bad actor would, would, uh, would arise. For me, that was, that was the, the biggest sort of shocker. Um, the, the, I think that, you know, what, what we did really was we said no a lot, which is painful. Um, and that's why, yeah. And that's why it was, uh, yeah, that's why it was such a, um, it was such a, a wonderful moment when, you know, the new uh, uh, sister journals arrived because, you know, we could say no and we could direct an otherwise really excellent paper, just one that didn't quite fit into, you know, fertility and sterility um, into, you know, a, into a more appropriate place. Um, so, yeah, so uh, we were just, well, speaking for myself, at least, we were just, we were just the, the no people. And, and that was a challenge for sure, because we're saying no to our friends, right? Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, and before we go to Tony, I was going to ask you about the no's, but before I wasn't expecting the, um, the misconduct uh, statement. What Can you explain that? A little? What, what are the most common ones? Like I, Oh, the, well, the, the, the most common ones are little and, and, and we correct them in flight. You know, we, we say, are you sure that you want to like, you know, copy the materials and methods from one paper to another, right? It's that's self-plagiarism, et cetera. Those, those are the little ones. The, the big ones, the ones that really sort of catch you up are things like fabrication of data or like taking a figure from one um, article and putting it into another article. And the figure is like relabeled and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's fabrication. Um, so th those, those were just kind of jaw dropping. Um, and how do you find that out? Like if I, the you, yeah, like how do you find the, the other paper if it was taken from an obscure or not obscure journal? Like you don't know every paper in the world. So, so that's realizes. why, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So we, we have, we have uh, computational tools. We have this thing called cross check, which looks for plagiarism, but most of the time it catches, you know, just somebody like repeating materials and methods. Yeah. So the, the real place where that um, comes from um, is having a very robust peer review group, right? So by having those associate editors who are so versed with all of the areas of reproductive uh, medicine in, in the literature and following it, right? I mean, you follow the literature, right? You spend a tremendous amount of your time following the literature. Um, so, you know, so when you're looking at a, at a manuscript that's come in and, and wow, that figure looks really familiar. And then you think, oh my goodness, I saw that figure here. It's, it's really the human uh, factor that, um, that, that really sort of like helps us sleuth these things out. Thank you. How about you, Tony? How did you deal with saying no? I think you have less friends today than you had 10 years ago, so. <laughs> for sure, for sure, at, at least at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, no. I think that people uh, people understand, but uh, it takes time. First of all, remember that uh, our acceptance rate when we arrived uh, to the journal it was about thinking in the range of forty percent. 
So, and this this is why Alan had so many troubles with the with the backlog because uh, there were many papers uh, waiting for being published. Uh, so we started to reduce the acceptance rate. So people didn't understand because in the past they were able to uh, to publish the papers very very easily. Let's say no. And then there was another important uh, point here that we took a, a very straightforward decision, which was to get rid of a section that was called correspondence, where people publish a short paper with one, one or two figures maximum, so that this kind of paper didn't bring much uh, to the knowledge. However, uh, there were many and people, many people uh, uh, send these kind of papers. And when we just uh, stop uh, this kind of publication, uh, people were obviously uh, disappointed. But uh, in the end, hopefully people understand. Hopefully, or they will forget. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay. okay, well, perfect. So I, I just, uh, if, if, if I were, not that I would be called to be editor-in-chief of, editor of some important journal, I think I would, it would cross my mind, you know, I would think uh, this journal is a cornerstone of the field. What if I mess this up? Uh, how did you deal with this massive responsibility to the entire field? Because I think FNS really uh, defines certain aspects of the field. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but that's how I think of FNS. What are your thoughts? So I, I'm so glad that you didn't like say that when we were starting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that I, I, I just don't function that way. Um, I don't function uh, from the basis of fear. I, it just has not been a part of you know my personality. Um, Tony, I don't think functions that way either. No. Good for you. Good for you. I, I'm talking from a personal perspective. I had I, I was accepted to John Stites' lab when I was like postdoc, and for three nights I was waking up with the dream that I was being called to her room and told that uh, it was a mistake and you didn't you don't belong in this lab. Okay, so you don't think that way. That's great. Well, so, well, so, so so hang on, you were younger, right? Um, yeah, and and one of the reasons why I. Um, why I, you know, applied for the position of uh, of uh, editor in chief of fertility and sterility was that I had turned fifty, um, and you know, I, at that point in my life, I was thinking, you know, if I don't do try for the things that you know I really want um, now, it's never going to happen, right? So it, it's a completely different sort of mind frame. Absolutely, absolutely. No, you're right. Yeah. How about you, Tony? Were you stressed at all? No, not much, really, not much. I mean, uh, when you take a position which is new for you, you always believe that uh, you, may, uh, you may need some time to learn. But uh, at the end, we managed to do it. And uh, I think uh, we can be happy of the results. Perfect, perfect. How about the good things? What were the best parts of being editor-in-chief of Fertility Sterility? What was the most uh, rewarding part? Other than meeting Tony, um, it was really sort of like meeting everybody, right? All of the uh, all of the authors, um, you know, just traveling around the world and you know, and and uh, establishing relationships with with just incredible people around the world. What is uh, fun from uh, this job is that scientifically, I mean, is for me, it's a, it's a position that is not very political. 
I'm not saying it's, it's not political because politics is everywhere, but certainly uh, it's more uh, scientific than political. And, uh, and uh, this is, uh, for me, that was the main advantage to be able to, uh, to be in contact with the scientific work that people wanted to, uh, to publish and, and be able to judge it, which in the end is a great uh, responsibility because, you know, somehow uh, we, it is in our hands where we publish it or not. Although uh, since there are other journals, there are other opportunities. So it's not that it's not a yes or not. It's yes in, in our journal or somewhere else. But uh, this is a lot of fun. Actually. Perfect. Perfect. So um, in addition to everything else you've done, some of your uh, responses are purely editorial. How did you choose the primary themes or topics uh, that you want to highlight in, in each of the... So we, we didn't. That, that's the thing. That is, that is the, um, the beauty of having this body of editorial editors. Um, they are the ones that are responsible for that content. Right? So the associate editors are responsible for the peer review process, the backbone of, of original contributions in the journal. But um, from the very beginning, we recognized that edit editorial content was very, very important um, and that we needed a really robust group of, of um, what we called editorial editors. Uh, to come up with, with what you're calling themes. Um, so views and reviews and later fertile battle and, and all of that uh, uh, sort of thematic content uh, was, um, was uh, created by, you know, the minds of uh, Mark Sigmund or, or Zeb Rosenwax or really, you know, incredible, incredible thinkers. Um, so uh, so we, we're the beneficiaries of, uh, of, of our team. Whenever we have a coffee talk, uh, uh, we end up talking to people we, we think highly of. Uh, we, and you are both definitely visionary individuals. So I would like to take this opportunity to, to ask you about the future. Where do you think uh, reproductive scientific journals will be in 10 or 20 years? Will there be significant changes in the way we communicate science, the way we peer review works, etc.? So, So... It Okay, Craig, go go ahead. No, 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 Tony, go for it. I'm, I'm happy. No, 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 you are more visionary than me. But I would say <laughs> that people, I mean, the the future for me is uh, the type the type of communication, the type of communication in the future should be concrete, short, and go to the point. In fact, many journals are already asking for uh, some videos, some. Uh, summary slides because people uh, have less time and, and need a, a, a clear communication in a short period of time and always electronic. How about you, Craig? Yeah, I totally agree with Tony. I, I think that paper is, is no longer um, useful in a certain sense, right? Because people are like uh, accessing information through online searches uh, and you can get directly to the article through an online search. Over the course of our 10 years, um, the 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 amount of uh, material found in our journal um, through Google searches just like skyrocketed. So people, people, people really, when they want the information, they're you know searching for it, and so it's got to be in electronic form, right? Um, but uh, but I, I gave this talk. Uh, it's the Bruce Stewart Memorial Lecture at ASRM a few years ago, um, and this was a part of my of my talk was like what the future of, of publishing looks like. 
Um, and I think that the real question, I, I think that the actual, you know, the actual format of the article isn't going to change much, right? It's been around for hundreds of years and it works really well. Um, but how that article is reviewed, I think, is going to change a lot. So, for example, when I have a coding problem, um, I, you know, go to Stack Overflow. I, that's where I go to. Uh, and, um, and I put my coding problem and I, I, you know, I spend a lot of time figuring out how to like be as succinct as possible. So it, it's well written. So I put my coding problem there and within a couple of minutes, I'm getting responses from around the world, right? And these responses are upvoted or downvoted. That's a peer review process right there. So within, you know, a, a very short period of time, the, you know, best response has floated up to the top. I have my answer and I move on. Now you can say, yeah, coding is a lot different than biology, but the fact of the matter is it's, it's the same process. And that is, is that we're putting information out there and we're you know, opining on it and we're trying to you know, find uh, concrete solutions to it. It's the same sort of thing. So I, I think that, um, that where peer review is going to end up um, is much more likely uh, in a format like Stack Overflow than it is in you know in a you know in a published uh, in a published journal. Just to clarify, in this analogy, your problem is the manuscript, and the responses you get are the peer reviews. Or did I understand it? That is exactly correct. Okay, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. It it will also it will also make it, in my opinion, more um, democratic in a sense, or like the more opinions, the better in a sense. Uh, so you could get more opinions because it's always a difficult thing to find uh, reviewers, I assume, right? It, to find three or four. Instead, you may end up having 20 reviewers. Exactly. Uh, that, that's, that can definitely help. And, uh, and the rest, of, obviously, is like Tony said, will be more, more uh, electronic in every, every possible sense. We also realize uh, that, you know, the, no offense to Andres, but, you know, the younger generations are, are maybe going to read uh, shorter articles. I mean, you, you, you can't you can look at National Geographic. 20 years ago, the articles were 20 pages. Now they're like two pages, right? There, there is a change in, in, in the length of stuff. So maybe things will become shorter in the way they're published or, or uh, as Tony said, more succinct in the way they're presented to, to, uh, to people. I have another question about the future, but before that, uh, uh, I want to take this uh, opportunity to ask Craig and also, of course, also Tony about uh, what do you think is going to be the most uh, followed parameter in the next years in, in a journal? Like, I know you have concerns about impact factor. So can, can you take a few minutes or maybe it's, there's not enough time to discuss this, but uh, I know you have opinions about this. And Craig has a strong opinion. <laughs> the, the impact factor has been like decried for a really good reason, because it's gameable. You can game it. Right. You can like tell everybody, of course, we didn't because we play fair. You can tell everybody you have to like cite other papers in this journal. Um, it, it's just it's a terrible uh, metric. And, and in fact, um, uh, in fact, there, there was an entire movement uh, around it where the major journals complained about the impact factor. So um, that that was uh, uh, a uh, movement coming out of San Francisco. Uh, and um, and so. The problem is, is that it's 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 ingrained in the culture of of you know of the university, right? It's going to be really hard to get deans to like, or you know, promotion committees to like, look at something else and understand why, because everything else is more complicated. The impact factor is so easy to understand. You know, it's just a simple division. 
Um, but what people don't understand is that uh, Thomson Reuters actually selects what's going to be in the denominator. So it goes from being very easy to understand to be incredibly opaque. Um, my favorite is the eigenfactor score because it functions the way that it's mathematically computed. It functions exactly like a, you know the core of a Google search. Um, so it rewards um, citations uh, to journals that have more prominence in the field. It's, it's probably the best way to put it in English, um, which is what you're really interested in, right? You, you, you would think that a citation from like uh, the Lancet would be like, uh, you know, more valuable than a citation from the Journal of the Last Repute. But that's not how the impact factor works. The impact factor treats them both the same. The eigenfactor, just by the way that it's computed, um, will weight the, you know, the one coming from the Lancet more. Uh, so, uh, but the problem is, is that this eigenfactor score varies between zero and one, right? It's an eigenvalue. So it's like, oh, wow, you know, I have an impact factor of like, I just published a uh, journal in an impact factor of uh, with an impact factor of five, or, hey, this is awesome. I just published in a journal with an eigenfactor of like 0 0.04. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't <laughs> generate the excitement, right? So, so yeah, so probably the impact factor is going to be here to stay for a while, and hopefully people will behave and, and you know, and, and not game it as much and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, I was uh, courageous enough to ask you this question because you did do it. I mean, you did increase the impact factor. Now, now your opinion about this is even more valuable. It's not like you're saying impact factor doesn't matter after tanking the impact factor. <laughs> so, no. How about you, Tony? Yeah, well, we, I mean, but we did the two uh, very simple uh, movements. One of them is to uh, try to increase the quality. And, uh, and together with the quality, we, we try to uh, attract some uh, interesting uh, new fields like uh, the uterine transplantation. And the second thing that we did is to reduce the number of uh, manuscripts published uh, per month once we got rid of the backlog. Because, I mean, it's, it's very simple. Uh, you is a, is a division uh, between the number of citations and uh, the number of papers published. So when we started, we were publishing around 40 manuscripts per issue and uh, human reproduction, uh, for example, was publishing half of it, 20. Thank you, Tony. So my final question is also about the future and about the future in the field. Um, and I would like you both, uh, again, the visionary that you are, um, make some predictions about the most exciting new things you expect to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. Maybe Craig can take the male and, and Tony can take the female and then uh, that'll be uh, my final question. So, um, okay, for the male, um, but I, I think some of this is, is going to just cross over, right? Um, I think it, for this one, it, it's male and female, right? And that is just that we're going to have more, we're gonna have more data on gametes, right? Right now, the reason why IVF is better than IUI is that you actually have a period of time when you can see the development of the embryo, right? So you have that additional information. And we're beginning to get some molecular signatures, as you know, from you know developing embryos, and that gives us some information as well. But imagine non-destructively being able to like look inside of a sperm or an egg and say, this sperm is like perfect for this egg. Um, I, th I think that, that, that is, that's, that's gonna happen in the future. Likewise, um, a lot of what we do, and this will be specifically for the male, um, a lot of what we do for the male is hampered by the fact that, um, that spermatogenesis is so slow, right? It's like you can follow, 
you can follow um, ovulation with ultrasound. It, spermatogenesis takes like two months. So we, we can't really sort of like, you know, do these, um, these uh, endocrine stimulatory trials um, and have like semen be the output. Now, Peter Schlegel like introduced for us the first way to like at least have a binary outcome, getting sperm or not from microtessie. So that now we're starting to like look at endocrine stimulatory um, protocols for the male as well as the female. And not surprisingly, they, they, they work, right? So we're, we're gonna need to see more of that. So uh, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, the backwards, uh, we haven't been able to treat the male with you know, good endocrine protocols, I think is, is going to fall by the wayside and we're gonna have just as good, just as spirited uh, uh, dialogue over uh, stimulatory protocols uh, for the male. Um, and then of course, uh, of course, sort of gametogenesis, right? Making sperm. Why can't we, you know, make sperm out of like somatic cells? We should be able to, right? We're we're halfway there at least, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah. So I, I think that I think that that's uh, how about stem cells? Uh, bingo, uh, bingo. You're, you're, yeah. No, no. I mean, we uh, we we can't even make uh, sperm from stem cells that well, right? Am I wrong? Well, so so there was that really nice CRISPR study a, a couple of years ago. Um, that really made fake sperm. And it's so cool. I love this because it was, it was my fake mice sperm. It, if you like look at what the sperm look like and they made little mice pups, right? So they work. Um, so, but if you look at what the sperm look like, they are these amorphous blobs, which really, it really speaks volumes to this idea that you don't need good sperm shape or IVF. All you need is good contents, right? And then that gets back to the original thing, which is, can we look inside of gametes? non-destructively and figure out like, you know, which are the good ones. Fair enough, fair enough, thank you. How about you, Tony, what do you think? We talk about, about this with you quite a bit, but I would like to have you on the record. Well, um, there are many areas uh, for improvement and this is good. Uh, uh, first of all, I believe that we have to uh, make the overall treatments more uh, patients friendly because uh, all these treatments are based uh, basically on the female. Apart from some cases that you have to get sperm from, from the testicle, most of the cases is the woman who gets the injections, the pickup, etc., etc. So most of our patients work. So go to the clinic every day or every two days to do the ultrasound, the, the blood and analysis and all this has to be simplified. I mean, we have to find a way uh, perhaps to be monitored uh, uh, from home and uh, telemedicine has an important role to play here. Uh, then uh, in the lab, I think that uh, there are two important areas of improvement. Uh, IBF or ART in general is very much um, individual dependent. If you have a good embryologist, you get beautiful embryos. In somebody, if somebody has one today, one bad day, uh, your embryos may suffer. Uh, and automation of the, of the lab should be a reality in the near future. Uh, the beginning where we were uh, making cars uh, by hand and, and today is all, all about uh, robotics, no? So I think that the future in the lab is also robotics. 
Uh, and not to forget the fact that uh, we are still halfway for being able to select the best and competent embryos. So uh, PGTA uh, has been an important step forward, uh, but uh, there is a lot, uh, a lot still to learn. And uh, finally, uh, last but not least is what uh, Greg mentioned, because uh, we are now in the area of uh, trying to activate uh, the ovaries uh, that are in follicles that remain in the ovaries, dormant follicles that need to be awakened in women who, are, who have uh, POI, premature menopause or ovarian insufficiency. But uh, how about uh, making eggs out of uh, somatic stem cells? This, if one day is possible, will be totally will be totally revolutionary. Thank you so much to both of you. This was so exciting, uh, such great ideas. It was so wonderful to get a peek at how FNS uh, was made and how it changed over the past ten years. I could spend days talking to you. I'm sure you wouldn't want that. But um, again, uh, thank you so much for having coffee with us today, and much more importantly, thank you for all you have done for a pillar of our profession, such as fertility and sterility. This has been amazing. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andre and Andres. You're welcome. Happy to have you. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Thank you.